Welcome to the Women Who Code podcast. With my children, when they were in school, they, they always had this view of what, what does a computer scientist look like? And it was never me. It was never what I look like. And so my daughter would say to me, you know, well, I keep telling them that my mom is that my mom does computer science and you don't look like that. And so I would like to change that. I think it's so important that, you know, you, if you can see it, you can be it. It's time for Women Who Code Conversations, a segment to hear from top technology professionals sitting down with a Women Who Code member to discuss real world experiences in the industry. Hi, everyone. My name is Luz, and I am the Leadership Fellow of Front and Track at Women Who Code. And today we will interview Fereshta Morgan. Fereshta is the Executive Director of Software Engineering at Boeing Global Services, making a tremendous impact on the defense of our nation. She has spent 20 years generating cutting edge software, technical roadmaps, and new processes to cover more than 1 billion worth of innovative products that are orbiting space flying in the sky, stationed on the ground, and autonomously ro roaming our oceans. She is a distinguished Boeing Associate Technical Fellow, a prestigious honor that puts her in the top 4% for the 60,000 scientists and engineers at Boeing. And her portfolio includes com commercial and defense products. And she was awarded Technical Innovation in Industry for Women of Color. Fereshta. Your profile is so amazing and inspiring. I know you have a technical background with software design and architecture. Can you tell more about your career journey? How did you come to work in technology? So first, Liz, thank you so much uh, for having me here today. It's such a privilege and an honor to be able to speak with you. Um, so my career journey definitely was not planned. There was no uh, forethought into where I was gonna be here today. Um, I had equal parts luck and a little bit of curiosity, um, and I'd be happy to share that with you and the listeners here today. Um, I grew up as a child in the 80s, uh, and my father was an electrical engineer, and so he was a big technologist, and the PC, the personal computer, was really taken off, and we would build those in the house uh, on the dining table, and so um, I was building 286s and 386s, and because I had these little tiny hands, I often would help my dad in feeding the memory of their CPUs or fishing out the little jumpers. There's little teeny tiny pieces of plastic. And um, over time, he just let me do it on my own. And so I was the fourth and fifth grader really building computers um, when nobody else was actually doing that. And it wasn't out of the ordinary. It's just something we would do for fun. And I really enjoyed putting them together. I enjoyed installing the operating systems. Uh, I never thought I was going to be in computer science. This was just a hobby. Um, and in fact, a fun fact, I spent prom night building a 486 <laughs> computer. So you can almost say that it's just always been interesting to me. It's always been in my DNA. Fast forward to college, I go to school and I study biochemistry and physics. So as far away from computer science as you can think of it, I had um, these grand aspirations of becoming a physician. Um, and of course, when something is your passion and you really like it, it defines you over time. And so I was always volunteering in the biochemistry lab to set up the IR spectroscopy computers. And I was writing and running scripts uh, in our uh, biochem labs to um, match DNA. And so DNA technology was really maturing. And I, I ended up actually running all of the labs 
and being the person that logged in remote um, and did all the analyses and kicked off the scripts. And, you know, you're kind of doing this and that becomes more fun than the lab work you're doing itself. And so for fun, again, I started taking computer science classes um, on the side. And so now I've got computer science, I got biochemistry, I've got physics, and I don't have a whole lot of free time. And I'm just doing more and more and more of this. And I end up almost taking the whole curriculum for computer science for fun. And um, right around when I graduated, it was top of the dot com. And I had uh, multiple offers from various uh, organizations and, you know, basically wanting to hire me for my computer science skills and for my programming skills. Um, and so top of the dot com, uh, I had to tragically tell my parents I wasn't going to go to med school. Uh, they were very disappointed in me uh, that I was going to end up an engineer just like them. I'm just kidding. Of course not. It was, it was, uh, they were very happy for me. Um, and I ended up working for a company uh, that was really developing the precursor to Google Earth. So I was writing tessellation algorithms and fusion and high-speed uh, data transformations. And that company eventually was acquired by Boeing. And that is how I uh, came to be at Boeing many, many years ago. And you can almost say that my whole career arc and journey has been just um, several very happy accidents uh, for me just finding my own path. That's amazing and inspiring. Super glad to hear about your path as a happy accident. Farishta, I know you have covered the spectrum of software from seabed to space. Can you describe what it encompasses? Sure. So I've been incredibly privileged to work at Boeing. Um, and a lot of my peers in industry ask me, well, why have you been at one company for so long? And a lot of it is exactly to what you just pointed to um, because of the incredible opportunities I've had, um, the seabed to space uh, arena. And for example, I've had the privilege of being the software architect for a payload of an autonomous submarine. And we're not talking about little submarines. We're talking about 85-foot-long 80, submersibles that go out for many months at a time. Um, and then if you just lift up out of the ocean, um, I've been... Uh, software engineer. I've been a software architect for ground stations and other similar solutions. You lift up into the sky. I've helped route airplanes around volcanic eruptions and other meteorological events. And of course, in space, I've worked satellite management software for both commercial and government customers. And I really can't think of any other place where I would have had um, the opportunity to follow my curiosity um, and work on platforms that were interesting to me, but also um, were had a very strong mission where I felt very connected to. And so throughout my whole career, I've either written code or managed teams that write code for all of these uh, various platforms and projects. Wow, that's amazing. And because you have led such technical code bases, but also multiple and multidisciplinary teams, can you talk more about your current role and responsibilities day to day? Yes, of course. So you mentioned earlier, I am the executive director of software engineering for Boeing Global Services. And in that role, I lead the second largest software organization at Boeing today. Um, and so a lot of people ask, well, what does Boeing Global Services provide? Um, and so I'd like to maybe lead with an example, if that's okay. Um, 
So you've probably heard of like a Boeing commercial airplane, like a 777. So if you imagine the process of building and developing an aerospace product like the 777, we generally think of what goes into the production of that platform. So things like the design, the development, and maybe the actual physical production. But while this seems like a lot of effort to create this new platform, if we really look at the total life cycle of that platform, it's only roughly 30%. So the development, the production of the airplane is only 30%. Now the others remaining 70% of the total life cycle really resides in Boeing Global Services, BGS. So this includes items like the maintenance, the modifications, the service upgrades, the training and other crew services that we provide. And then my team develops and maintains the software that supports that 70% of our platform life cycle. So uh, in terms of mission, it's very mission heavy. The work that we do really drives a lot of outcomes for our customers, but also in terms of revenue, it drives a lot of revenue for Boeing as well. So very lucky that we sit in the Venn diagram, the intersection of those two things. Now, that was just an example of some of the things, uh, you know, my team's doing BGS. Um, also, we do other things like support equipment software that we deploy around the world. We write so flight software for some of our platforms. But generally, the work that I do and my team does, it sits on that 70% of the platform lifecycle um, after it's sold to the customer. Wow, that's amazing. And many of our Women Who Code members are going are looking to grow into leadership positions that, and we need advice from senior women like you to know the best way to lead a team with having a technical background. What could you suggest to all of us? Now, I don't believe there's one perfect way to lead a team. Um, and I don't certainly claim that I have the answer on how to do this for everybody else, but I can share with you know, the listeners here how I found my way and some of the lessons learned that I have. Um, and then for me, the best way was to really look and learn and watch the leaders I admired and found the ones that were most inspiring and figured out, you know, why were they inspiring? How do they have these productive teams in like really challenging environments? And so just like a, a lesson in life, I took notes of their lessons and I folded them into how I lead teams. And so one thing I would say is I would encourage anyone who's looking to grow into these leadership positions is to really look around them um, and find those respected leaders um, and then reflect on the lessons they can learn from them and fold them into their own style. So that would be, you know, maybe a top line at the macro level uh, advice that I can give. Um, but that being said, there's a couple of key traits that have served me well um, in how I lead teams. And the first one is really the ability to listen. So it's so incredibly important to listen and to listen carefully and actively. Um, a lot of times everyone's busy talking and no one's really listening to the teams and there's a lot of good input that comes from teams. And if teams feel like you're listening to them, they're more likely for them to listen to you as well. Um, so I think that's an incredibly useful um, first principles trait to have. Um, the other one I would say is really to be curious and not judgmental. I find that that serves me well in my career um, because if you leave space for other perspectives, if you come to it with curiosity, people can see that. They can see good intentions. Um, and that will allow you to bring other ideas in and be able to come up with the best solution for a team. It's very rarely that one person has the answer in a team. 
And that's the right answer. It's really allowing space uh, to bring um, ideas in. Uh, another one that I like is to ask a lot of questions and ask the right questions and ask them often. Um, and that just takes time and practice to know what questions to ask, um, but keep asking them and ask the right ones and repeat them over and over. And eventually what happens is people come to you um, with answers and with solutions and that allows you to kind of incubate all of those various ideas into one. One I just did yesterday uh, is to let people know you're here to help. That, you know, servant leadership is, is a real thing. Um, but at the end of the day, if people think that you're there to support them and to build a team, they're more likely to want to be with you as a part and grow. Um, so I think that's, again, those are really um, important skills to have as a leader. And of course, uh, software engineering is an important skill. If you're a software engineer and you want to lead a software engineering team, you should have some tech chops. Um, but there's some soft skills that really go hand in hand with it. And again, like we talked about being curious and not judgmental, over time, you will grow a reputation as a problem solver. Um, and you become uh, someone that people will go to when they have good ideas because they know you will champion those good ideas and they will come to you with more of those. And then you start gaining a reputation as both a incubator of great ideas and also a problem solver. And you can see how that can lead to other teams wanting for you to be on their team and to lead their bigger teams. And it's a snowball, a wonderful snowball effect uh, that happens. And all of the items that I'm mentioning here, none of it usually comes naturally to people. Uh, so I would say it takes practice and you'll probably get it wrong the first couple of times you try it. Um, but if you have the courage of your conviction, if you have um, authenticity in what you're trying to do, it will get easier over time and with practice, and then folks will gravitate towards you and you will get um, bigger and larger opportunities to lead teams. That's amazing. Totally agree with these points. And what are the key things that help you to continue to grow in your career? Yeah, that's another great question. Um, but I guess you can like go all the way back to my undergrad. Uh, I've always been a little bit fearless and a little bit of a risk taker. And uh, I've never let a particular role or activity be defined for me. Um, and maybe that, that could frustrate some people because you're like, well, I told you to go do this, but you wanna do this and something else. Um, but it really is that curiosity that I've always had. Um, and I think that just leads me to the next space. Um, I've never thought in my career that I'm going to go do this next. It's more like what what tickles my fancy, what keeps me curious, what problems do I want to solve next, and that has organically led for me to go from uh, strength to strength and growth to growth. And the other part is sometimes I've gone into areas where I have to admit that I was wrong. And I would say even um, like biochemistry, had I continued in that field uh, because I had committed to being a biochem major. I want to be here where I am today. So I got to admit, hey, maybe I was wrong and that wasn't the right decision. And, you know, let that uh, curiosity lead me to where my next path is. And I would say um, it's maybe not a formula that I can recreate, but it's worked for me so far. And that's a great tip for sure. Varesta, um, you are a senior woman leading in a field that it's not as diverse as we as women who code will like and but we are in our effort to achieve there 
Why do you think it is important for the industry to be diverse and how can the industry improve this? What a terrific question and one that sometimes people shy away from. It is so diversity in thought and perspective and economic background. It is so incredibly important to have in any team, um, not just in a, in a computer science or in a technological field, but in this field in particular, it's even more important because, and I'll give an example, um, with the proliferation of AI and recommending systems and um, how those are developed, the people that develop them have biases. Humans have biases. That's, that's how we are. That's why we're human. Um, and if we don't have more diversity in the folks that are developing those platforms, those biases get amplified. And so, so important that we have a very good, broad, um, diverse perspective and a field um, that is loaded with folks that can support various viewpoints so that when we build these new technologies that you know, we try to mitigate some of those biases as much as possible. And then the second um, flip side of this is particularly for computer science. You know, when I was uh, growing up, uh, the media really portrayed it, um, computer scientists in such a narrow scope. Um, and they're, you know, I know even with my children, when they were in school, they, they always have this view of what, it, what does a computer scientist look like? And it was never me. It was never what I look like. And so my daughter would say to me, you know, well, I keep telling them that my mom is that my mom does computer science and you don't look like that. And so I would like to change that. I think it's so important that, you know, you, if you can see it, you can be it. And so that we have more um, diversity represented front and center so that the, the future that is developing these technologies for us sees themselves in the solutions going forward and then apply themselves to go, of course, if they're curious in it, apply themselves and so that they can go and build these systems for us in the future. So incredibly important. And fresh that now we have known you as a senior woman in technology, but we want to get to know you as a person too. What are you passionate about outside of work? So this is not the time for me to say that I actually like building computers to this day. So I'll skip that part. <laughs> I, I often volunteer at STEM activities at my children's uh, school. Because um, like I said, if you, if you see it, um, you can be it. So I try to be visible in my role model and pay it forward, really, all of the um, advice and good fortune that I've had in my life. Um, try to pay it as, in, in any capacity that I can. And like I said, I, I'm always curious. Um, and like to do things I'm afraid of. And one of the things I was afraid of several years ago was um, being clipped into a bicycle. So I'm a cyclist. I'm really into it. I'm a roadie. For those of you who are mountain bikers, I, I, I cannot do that yet. That is a real big passion of mine. I, I would like to have more time to spend on my bike. But primarily, my biggest passion is my family. Uh, I have a 12 and 14-year-old. Um, uh, daughter and a son, and I really enjoy spending time with them uh, and really um, watching them grow their curious space. Uh, and similar to the way that my mom and my dad uh, nurtured me when I was younger, 
And so they often ask me, mommy, what will I do when I grow up? And I say, I don't know. No one knows. Just be curious and see where it leads you. That's amazing. And it's uh, amazing to see that you apply the curiosity in both your professional and your personal life. Do you have a pro tip for women in technology that you want to share with the rest of us? Yeah, sure. Um, again, the curiosity and being absolutely fearless. Um, don't worry about being wrong. Don't worry about making a mistake. Uh, make mistakes fast, learn from it, and move forward. So absolutely be curious, uh, be fearless. And then the other one in particular for women uh, is that sometimes we're, we're defined by external identities that other people assign for us. But you're either this or that. And I don't agree with that. I think you're an and. You could be this and something else. And so I would say embrace your inner and, uh, not your or, um, and don't be defined by anything external to you. Thank you for that super proud tip for all of us. It's been amazing to have this conversation with you. We are following you now and we are super inspired by you and your example. Thank you so much for your time and thank you everyone for watching this interview. Thank you for listening to the Women Who Code podcast. To find out more about our mission and the work we do across the tech industry, visit our website, womenwhocode.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Women Who Code. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel with hundreds of hours of free educational videos. Just go to youtube.com backslash women who code. Thanks again for listening and remember to subscribe, rate, and comment.